This program was pre-recorded. It's time for Fletch Nation on Talk 107.3 FM WBRP with your host Roy Fletcher, political analyst and campaign coordinator, and Kevin Gallagher from AM Baton Rouge with Kevin and Bill. It's time to talk some politics. It's Fletch Nation. Now, here's Roy and Kevin. And hello once again. Coming to you live from the Guarantee Media Studios in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Roy, how are you, my friend? Good morning, Kevin. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to cover, including some breaking news. We get, can, we, can we get that in real quick before we go to our special guest? Yes. Uh, it seems that President Trump has canceled the summit with uh, Kim de Runt in, uh, in Singapore. He uh, said sent a letter to him and uh, to uh, Kim and said, uh, hey, it's not the time. Time's not appropriate. Uh, in other words, if you continue to uh, talk about not coming to a summit, then I'll just go ahead and cancel it. And we'll we'll discuss it over the phone. I'm sure. More uh, on this as it develops, and of course you'll want to smart check in play with by your... the president. I think he uh, the, the 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 guy was sort of acting a little goofy. He's all over the place. Yeah, he's all over the place. He'll be and, little rocket man again by the end of the week. Yeah, but you know, a little jerk on the chain. Let's get right to our uh, special guest because yeah, we don't have we, much time. Yeah, we yeah you know, we have Chris Wilson, who's a national Republican pollster, polled for Ted Cruz in the presidential race and polling for a number of U.S. Senate campaigns. Chris, thanks for being on today. We appreciate it. Uh, you, you, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, besides your no friend, is that uh, you published some stuff on Twitter uh, right after the uh, primaries the other night, and I thought it was pretty interesting in terms of turnout. Give us a little bit of uh, give us give us a little bit of perspective on turnout. Sure. Well, I've been uh, trying to monitor turnout going back to the Texas primary, which was the first one in the nation. And you may remember leading up to it, Democrats continued to, to tout that they were going to flood the polls and they were running up the score in early voting. And I kept telling reporters that I didn't think that was happening. I thought they were cannibalizing their Election Day vote because they ran the first get-out-the-vote program in the history of the Texas Democratic Party. I'm only slightly exaggerating when I say that. <laughs> and exactly what I said uh, was going to come to fruition did, isn't that Republicans cost was really no competitive statewide races at all, 1.5 million votes, and Democrats were around 900,000. And so then, of course, the, the press said, well, that's not a trend. It's not going to keep happening. And then guess what? A couple weeks later, we had primaries in Indiana and Ohio and West Virginia, and Republicans, again, set records for turnout in a couple of those states, and Democrats had record low turnout. And then it continued the following week and in Pennsylvania and Oregon, and then last night we had a few different states in which I'll, and that's what I'll, I'll get to specifically. We had uh, we had turnout, or not last night, but on Tuesday. I'm sorry. We had uh, elections in Texas and Georgia and uh, and uh, what else? Uh, Indiana. One of the state. In, no, last night was uh, Arkansas, Arkansas. Arkansas. That's right. So, so in that we had. Let's just look at Texas first. So remember, I said there were about a million votes cast with the Democrats. And that was good. I mean, they, they were able to hit their 2016 levels, which is, you know, when you're able to do off your turnout whenever it's, and match presidential year turnout, that's not a bad thing. But they only had four. They had a hotly contested gubernatorial runoff here, Roy, uh, between Lupe Valdez and Andrew White. And right. yet, despite that hotly contested primary, they set a record. It was actually the lowest turnout in 100 years in Texas for a runoff election. They only had 415,000 voters. Wow. That's a decline of 60% from the primary. So the fewest Democrat votes cast since 1920. 
So to put it in perspective, the last time they had that few votes cast, women had just gotten the right to vote. So it's um, I mean, <laughs> about that from a historical context. Yeah. Now, the interesting part of this is, is now that the numbers are completely coming through, despite the fact there was not a single statewide Republican contest, no statewide, remember Democrats had a hotly contested uh, runoff on the governor's race, Republicans in Texas had the third highest turnout in history. In, Republic, in, in state history. So you have the second lowest turnout in history on the Democrat side and the third highest on the Republican side. And I think that is important to illustrate that, and this just isn't in Texas. Uh, to give you a few other examples, everyone's talking about the Democrats nominating a progressive uh, governor uh, in, ta- in Georgia. Well, Republicans right. cast 54,000 more votes there than the Democrats did. And in Arkansas, Republicans cast 96,000 more votes than Democrats did. And I think it's, uh, it's important to point out that even though there was certainly uh, some depression in Republican turnout in special elections coming off of uh, Donald Trump's inauguration, but that seems to have dissipated. In fact, last Tuesday we had the first pickup of a Democrat seat by a Republican, since, uh, and it was a state legislative seat up in Pennsylvania, since Donald Trump was inaugurated. And now we're continuing to see this uptick in Republican enthusiasm. And so I would argue, I mean, Democrats nominated here in Texas a woman by the name of Lupe Valdez. Right. She is a, a perfectly nice woman. She was the sheriff up in Dallas County. Right. Uh, she is also an openly uh, gay candidate. And she goes around and talks about her and her wife, which I'm glad she's proud of that. But having said that, that doesn't fit the value of most Texans. And the fact that they nominated someone who is so far left of center, which they've already done that in the Senate race with Beto O'Rourke, who is uh, probably one of the oh, 10 or 20 most liberal members of Congress. And initially enough, I mean, Roy, as you know, I, I just I had the opportunity to go to Israel uh, and spend some time over there on sort of an educational trip. And O'Rourke is also known as one of the most anti-Israel members of Congress. And that matters in a state like Texas, where it's a very pro-Israel state. And so I bring all this up to say is that I think you will find a, uh, a, a different level of enthusiasm when moving to the general election uh, that exists today than maybe did just a few months ago. And you see Republicans beginning to become enthused again. And I, I think that's because of some of the policy successes that Democrats have, uh, sorry, that Republicans have had now, cutting taxes, uh, repealing the Iran deal, rep- starting to uh, remove funding from Planned Parenthood. They haven't finished it up yet, but they've at least done it whenever there's counseling uh, involved. And so there are successes that are beginning to re-energize the Republican base. And I think your, the, the Republican turnout is going to look a little bit more like uh, 2016 than, or, or 2014 and 2010 than maybe 2006, which is what Democrats are hoping for. Right. So I'll bring up one last data point, and then I'll shut up. Yeah. The, the final data point I'll point out is the generic ballot, which is one of the most um, the leading indicators yeah, of that's... what's going to go on. Right. And for the first time since Donald Trump was inaugurated, Republicans have taken the lead in the generic ballot. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's one poll with the Reuters poll, the Reuters weekly poll, poll right. that they do. Yeah, and it's, a, it's a very solid poll. I mean, I really – there are some polls that I sort of quibble with or uh, am critical of. But the Reuters poll, because they don't just take one day and release it, they do a poll over the course of a week, it's really more of a – it's a better tracking uh, survey than I'd say like a Gallup or others would, which are kind of snapshot in time, snapshot of time. So I'm going to have to say that I think it, 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 all of this comes together to tell a story that some of the concerns that were – some of the enthusiasm that was existing on the Democratic side about a blue wave coming is uh, turning into maybe just a little bit of a blue splash against your ankles. I, I make a point on the Rasmussen. Th- 
I make a point on the Rasmussen thing that, uh, uh, excuse me, on the Reuters thing, Rasmussen sort of confirmed that on uh, mm-hmm. Wednesday. They had it at yep. one point uh, yep. on the generic ballot. So so the Democrats have closed tremendous. I mean, the Republicans have con- co- uh, closed tremendously on that issue. Yeah. No, that's true. They have the, there's, there is an enthusiasm and, and sentiment toward the, that the Republican Party is doing a good job. And I'd always argued, Roy, that that would happen after, after uh, April 15th, that, that voters would see that they actually did get a tax cut and the Democrats have been lying to them about it and that attitudes there would start to change. I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, so, so let me ask you this in, in, terms of, in terms of Trump and in terms of congressional elections this fall, uh, how is do you, do you think that uh, the policies are are, are impacting the or the Republican base and 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 the general public and as much as this commotion that's going on in Washington or do you think the commotion that's going on in Washington with the, with the spies and the FBI and the, so on and so forth is really penetrating anybody's uh, no. consciousness? You know what's interesting, Roy, is I, I have uh, I, I've done focus groups around the country. I'm doing this right. year. I'm, right now I'm involved in eight uh, Senate races and, and ten governor's races. Right. And from that, you know, I really – I probably get a, more of a chance to talk to voters than, uh, than just about anybody, and that doesn't include our survey research and analytics. Sure. And what's interesting about that is I have yet to do a focus group with swing voters. Uh, that is, those people who, you know, really aren't Republican, really aren't Democrat, kind of right. make a decision based on the candidate – uh, I have yet to hear a voter bring up Russia in a single group I've done. I bet I've done a few dozen groups. Uh, we asked an open-end question, most important issue today. There have been a few hardcore Democrats that have brought up Russia or Mueller, things like that. But from swing voters, not a one. Not a one. So it's it, Not a one. I do think it's a distraction. I think it's also there's a lot of confusion about it. I think there is a general consensus that it's time to move on. And, you know, the other aspect of this that I think is kind of entering into the, the consciousness here that's, that is interesting uh, with voters is Democrats. They are kind of gifted to keep on giving. You know, Al Green yesterday said that yes. if, if Democrats take the House, they will begin to keep against Trump. And I, I would encourage him to continue saying that because there's nothing that's going to energize the Republican base more than that sort of rhetoric. No, that's, uh, and, and it seems to me that's not a bad message for Republicans, Al. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wish he was Al Green, the singer, instead of Al Green, the congressman. <laughs> More coming up with Chris Wilson on Fletch Nation next. This program was pre-recorded. Flex Nation returns. Glad to have you with us. And, uh, a lot of things going on in the world of politics, both in the state and out of the state. Other states are almost in as much turmoil as we are here, Roy. Oh, uh, let's hope so. Uh, wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't be anything to do if we weren't, Kevin. Uh, we're glad you have you're, you're with us, and uh, we're going to uh, we're going to go to our next guest, who is uh, Daniel Miller, who has uh, written a book called Texas. And I forget just how and why Texas will leave the union, basically. And uh, Daniel, appreciate you being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
That's a fascinating subject. Uh, we we were big followers of Brexit here when it was happening in the King, uh, United Kingdom, and uh, uh, give us uh, give us a basic uh, basic outline of what you're talking about. And I, I, by the way, I know you've been involved with this a long, long time, like 20 years. So it's not anything new over there. No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, August will be uh, 20, 22 years. 22 uh, years. August. 22 years. And I, I can I can remember it like it was yesterday because it was a big step for me. Uh, you know, coming, coming from a, a family where my father was a Korean War vet. And, uh, you know, uh, he was an iron worker for 35 years. My mom was, you know, we were an all-American politically active family. And it was a, it was a step for me. All I'm right. Not gonna, tell I'm us, not going to sugarcoat it. Tell us, uh, tell us what basically your point is. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you start off talking about Brexit because I, I think any, anyone who followed that can, can understand the analogs. Obviously, besides the name Brexit and Texas. Uh, but, but essentially what, what it is is it's, no different than the case that they were making for the UK to leave the European Union. Uh, you know, te- Texans by and large believe that Texas would be better served if Texans were governing Texans and not a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, at the heart of the, of the entire Brexit discussion was this idea of self government and how the, the bureaucracy in Brussels as part of the European Union. Uh, was no longer serving the people of the UK. In other words, it was a very straight-up uh, analysis and said, look, you know, our best course of action, if we want to uh, have a prosperous United Kingdom, is for us to become, a, again, a self-governing, independent nation-state outside of that uh, political and economic union that is the European Union. And that's the case that, that we essentially make here. You know, as I've talked to thousands of Texans over the years, uh, one thing rings true, and that is Texans are sick and tired of living under 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations administered by 440 separate agencies and two and a half million unelected bureaucrats. Texans believe that the best people to govern Texas are Texans. Right. So so let me ask you this. Is that, does the, the fact that uh, Texas came into the union as a republic itself have anything to do with the, the ability to get out of the union because we did fight a civil war with respect to succession. Right. And, you know, oddly enough, you know, Texans love to make the case that because we were once an independent Republic, that it gives us a, a unique right. And the, the contention that, uh, that I make in the book is that it is not a right that is unique to Texas. Uh, every single state enjoys the right to reclaim their, their status and, and to withdraw from the union. Uh, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, when you look at the – and the opposition is always fond of saying how this is unconstitutional. Uh, but, but when you look at That's the That's kind of what I was alluding to. Go ahead. Right. When you look at the United States Constitution, one of the things you do not find in there is a prohibition against a state leaving the union. Uh, you, find, you find a list of all the things that states are prohibited to, you know, from doing, but leaving the union is not one of them. So – By virtue of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, which reserves any powers not granted to the federal government or forbidden to the states, it reserves them to the states, then it really and truly is up to the the individual states. So then you have to look at what state law is. And and I say that because there is an important distinction to make. 
you have the state of Nevada, which has an explicit constitutional prohibition in its state constitution from leaving the union. But here in Texas, you have Article One, Section One, and Article One, Section Two. Mm-hmm. Article One, Section One, which is this is a, a post Civil War constitution, mind you. It, it you know Article One, Section One starts off by saying that Texas is a free and independent state. And it goes on to say that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states. Then in Article 1, Section 2, it explicitly reserves the right to reform, alter, or abolish our form of government to the people of Texas. So without a, you know, in the absence of a constitutional prohibition and with the Tenth Amendment in play, and then you take that with Article 1, Section 1, Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution, uh, we have an absolute right, but it is not a unique right to Texas. Daniel, I have a question about Texas's fiscal picture. In states like Louisiana and many others, we rely on lots of billions of federal dollars flowing through our budget. Uh, is Texas right. self-sufficient? Yeah, and look, it goes beyond self-sufficiency, uh, obviously. I mean, you, you, there's a, a lot of people talking about you know, particularly in the opposition, that talk about the self-sufficiency of states, and they typically use it to, to take states that may not be as as economically uh, well-to-do as Texas is, to say you can't make it as an independent nation. But but that's not entirely the case. But specifically where Texas is concerned, you know, one of the things that that I talk about in the book is is really what that fiscal picture looks like in that financial relationship with the federal government. Uh, when you take all the money that Texans pay into the federal government and you subtract out all the federal money that comes back into Texas, you see that year after year, Texans pay, overpay an average of 100 to $150 billion a year into the federal government. Uh, for, you know, if, if we want to make an analog out of that, it's essentially the effect of a Hurricane Harvey hitting Texas every nine months. That's money that comes out of the pockets of Texas taxpayers that we never see again in any shape, form, or fashion, whether it be block grants, uh, direct program dollars, uh, or services. Does that include the military budget that's in uh, Texas? Because, I mean, it's Absolutely. NASA Absolutely. And, and, and you have all of the military constellations down around San Antonio, Waco, and all that? Every single dollar accounted for. Uh, we look, we're looking at anywhere from 100 to 150 billion dollars of overpayment every single solitary year. But but let me let me put it in these terms because I think it's important for people to understand that beyond just the raw dollars, you know, we've got this this challenge again, not unique to Texas, but really for all states of of the the growth of the federal super state. You know, we uh, I, I actually in the in the book I lay out a study that was conducted by George Mason University uh, that dealt with the economic impact of this fiscal regulatory accumulation. The federal government passes a regulation, there is a cost associated with it. They don't sunset it, and then they add regulations on top of it. So, in the study, one of the things that they noticed was there was a, a massive uptick in federal uh, regulation starting around 1949. So when they tracked the economic impact of this, by the time they released the study, the average median household income was somewhere in the ballpark of about fifty-two dollars to $54,000 a year. And what they showed was the economic impact of this federal overregulation, had that not happened since 1949, the average median household income would be about $330,000. And unfortunately, what we see is our states like Texas are impacted disproportionately and even more so across the spectrum, the people that are most af- 
affected by this in a disproportionate level are the working poor. Daniel, we're speaking with Daniel Miller, who's the author of Texit. Uh, I guess uh, I forgot the subtitle, How and Why Texas Should Leave the Union, basically, correct? It's by Defiance Press. And uh, very articulate spokesman for it. Uh, we uh, certainly appreciate you being with us. And uh, we're going to check back in with you and keep uh, keep up to date with what's going on with that because it's an interesting well, proposition. Well, I appreciate that, Roy. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to the day when Texas and Louisiana begin to trade with one another as, as peers, as independent nation states. It's uh, funny you should mention that. One of our listeners asked if you wanted to take Shreveport with you. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Daniel, thanks for being our guest. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. thanks. Interesting. Texas, it, 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 I, I thought nobody could secede from the union anymore. Well, you, you would think. I mean, you know, given that. Uh, as Earl Long told Leander Perez one time, Leander, the feds have the bomb. <laughs> I mean, with all due respect, <laughs> the feds have the bomb. <laughs> that pretty well sums it up. Yeah, pretty got a, well. Got about a minute to break. Uh, where are we going to go in our Who, final se- well, uh, segment? I, I don't know. We, we'll figure that out when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but that, that, that whole thing, I think the point of that is, is that, to me, is, is that Texas... You know, it always ran these ads. Texas is a whole nother country. Whole nother country. And don't uh, mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And and there's a certain bravado about Texas that you have to appreciate, even if you may not agree with the notion that Texas can succeed. But we do know that in California, there are liberals out there that want California to secede from the union, and there are conservatives out there that want parts of their state to secede from California. And become a separate, uh, I can't remember what they wanted to call their state, but they want a new state. A decent California, I believe is what it's called. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a brief brief pause, and we'll be back in moments. This is Reflect Nation. This program was pre-recorded. Flex Nation returns. Glad to have you with us. And, uh, a lot of things going on in the world of politics, both in the state and out of the state. Other states are almost in as much turmoil as we are here, Roy. Oh, uh, let's hope so. Uh, wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't be anything to do if we weren't, Kevin. Uh, we're glad you have you're, you're with us, and uh, we're going to uh, we're going to go to our next guest, who is uh, Daniel Miller, who has uh, written a book called Texas. And I forget just how and why Texas will leave the union, basically. And uh, Daniel, appreciate you being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. That's a fascinating subject. Uh, we we were big followers of Brexit here when it was happening in the King, uh, United Kingdom. And uh, uh, give us uh, give us a basic uh, basic outline of what you're talking about. And I, I, by the way, I know you've been involved with this a long, long time, like 20 years. So it's not anything new over there. No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, August will be uh, 20, 22 years. 22 uh, years. August. 22 years. And I, I can I can remember it like it was yesterday because it was a big step for me. Uh, you know, coming, coming from a, a family where my father was a Korean War vet. And, uh, you know, uh, he was an iron worker for 35 years. My mom was, you know, we were an all-American, politically active family. And it was a, it was a step for me. All I'm right. Not gonna, tell I'm us, not going to sugarcoat it. T- 
tell us uh, tell us what basically your point is. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you start off talking about Brexit because I, I think any anyone who followed that can, can understand the analogs. Obviously, besides the name Brexit and Exit, uh, but but essentially what what it is is it's no different than the case that they were making for the UK to leave the European Union. Uh, you know, te- Texans by and large believe that. Texas would be better served if Texans were governing Texans and not a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, at the heart of the the entire Brexit discussion was this idea of self-government and how the the bureaucracy in Brussels as part of the European Union uh, was no longer serving the people of the U.K. In other words, it was a very straight-up analysis and said, look, you know, our best course of action, if we want to uh, have a prosperous United Kingdom, is for us to become, a, again, a self-governing, independent nation-state outside of that uh, political and economic union that is the European Union. And that's the case that, that we essentially make here. You know, as I've talked to thousands of Texans over the years, uh, one thing rings true, and that is Texans are sick and tired of living under 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations administered by 440 separate agencies and two and a half million unelected bureaucrats. Look, look, let me ask you. believe that the best people to govern Texas are Texas. Right. So, so let me ask you this is does the, the fact that uh, Texas came into the union as a Republic itself have anything to do with the, the ability to get out of the union? Cause we did fight a civil war with respect to succession. Right. And you know, Oddly enough, you know, Texans love to make the case that because we were once an independent republic, that it gives us a, a unique right. And the, the contention that uh, that I make in the book is that it is not a right that is unique to Texas. Uh, every single state enjoys the right to reclaim their, their status and, and to withdraw from the union. Uh, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, when you look at the – and the opposition is always fond of saying how this is unconstitutional. Uh, but but when you look at that's kind of what I was alluding to. Go ahead. Right. When you look at the United States Constitution, one of the things you do not find in there is a prohibition against a state leaving the union. Uh, you find you find a list of all the things that states are prohibited to you know from doing, but leaving the union is not one of them. So by virtue of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, which reserves any powers not granted to the federal government or forbidden to the states, it reserves them to the states then it really and truly is up to the, the individual state. So then you have to look at what state law is. And, and I say that because there is a, an important distinction to make. Uh, you have the state of Nevada, which has an explicit constitutional prohibition in its state constitution from leaving the union. But here in Texas, you have Article One, Section 1, and Article One, Section 2. Mm-hmm. Article One, Section 1, which is – this is a, a post-Civil War constitution, mind you. It, it, you know, Article One, Section One starts off by saying that Texas is a free and independent state, and it goes on to say that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self-government unimpaired to all the states. Then, in Article One, Section Two, it explicitly reserves the right to reform, alter, or abolish our form of government to the people of Texas. So, without a, you know, in the absence of a constitutional prohibition and with the Tenth Amendment in play. And then you take that with Article One, Section One, Article One, Section Two of the Texas Constitution. Uh, we have an absolute right, uh, but it is not a unique right to Texas. 
Daniel, I have a question about Texas's fiscal picture. In states like Louisiana and many others, we rely on lots of billions of federal dollars flowing through our budget. Uh, is Texas right. self-sufficient? Yeah, and look, it goes beyond self-sufficiency, uh, obviously. I mean, you, you, there's a, a lot of people talking about, you know, particularly in the opposition, that talk about the self-sufficiency of states, and they typically use it to, to take states that may not be as, as economically uh, well-to-do as Texas is to say you can't make it as an independent nation. But, but that's not entirely the case. But specifically where Texas is concerned, you know, one of the things that, that I talk about in the book is, is really what that fiscal picture looks like in that financial relationship with the federal government. Uh, when you take all the money that Texans pay into the federal government and you subtract out all the federal money that comes back into Texas, you see that year after year Texans pay overpay an average of 100 to $150 billion a year into the federal government. Uh, for, you know, if, if we want to make an analog out of that, it's essentially the effect of a Hurricane Harvey hitting Texas every nine months. That's money that comes out of the pockets of Texas taxpayers that we never see again in any shape, form, or fashion, whether it be block grants, uh, direct program dollars, uh, or services. Does that include the military budget that's in uh, Texas? Because, I mean, uh, absolutely. NASA absolutely. and... And, and you have all of the military constellations down around San Antonio and Waco and all that? Every single dollar accounted for. Uh, we look, we're looking at anywhere from 100 to $150 billion of overpayment every single solitary year. But, but let, me, let me put it in these terms, because I think it's important for people to understand that beyond just the raw dollars, you know, we've got this, this challenge, again, not unique to Texas, but really for all states, of, of the, the growth of the federal super state. You know, we, uh, I, I actually, in the, in the book, I lay out a study that was conducted by George Mason University uh, that dealt with the economic impact of this fiscal regulatory accumulation. The federal government passes a regulation. There is a cost associated with it. They don't sunset it, and then they add regulations on top of it. So in the study, one of the things that they noticed was there was a, a massive uptick in federal uh, regulation starting around 1949. So when they tracked the economic impact of this, by the time they released the study, the average median household income was somewhere in the ballpark of about fifty-two dollars to $54,000 a year. And what they showed was the economic impact of this federal overregulation. Had that not happened since 1949, the average median household income would be about $330,000. And unfortunately, what we see is our states like Texas are impacted disproportionately, and even more so across the spectrum, the people that are most affected by this in a disproportionate level are the working poor. Daniel, we're speaking with Daniel Miller, who's the author of Texit. Uh, I guess uh, I forgot the subtitle, How and Why Texas Should Leave the Union, basically, correct? It's by Defiance Press. And uh, very articulate spokesman for it. Uh, we uh, certainly appreciate you being with us. And uh, we're going to check back in with you and keep uh, keep up to date with what's going on with that because it's an interesting well, proposition. Well, I appreciate that, Roy. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to the day when Texas and Louisiana begin to trade with one another as, as peers, as independent nation states. It's uh, funny you should mention that. One of our listeners asked if you wanted to take Shreveport with you. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Daniel, thanks for being our guest. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. 
Interesting. Texas, it, 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 I, I thought nobody could secede from the union anymore. Well, you you would think. I mean, you know, given that, uh, as Earl Long told Leander Perez one time, Leander, the feds have the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with all due respect, <laughs> the feds have the bomb. <laughs> that pretty well sums it up. Yeah, pretty got a, well. Got about a minute to break. Uh, where are we going to go in our no, final se- well, uh, segment? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but that 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 whole thing. I think the point of that is is that to me is is that Texas, you, you know, it always ran these ads. Texas is a whole nother country. Whole nother country. And don't uh, mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. And and there's a certain bravado about Texas that you have to appreciate, even if you may not agree with the notion that Texas can succeed. But we do know that in California there are liberals out there that want California to secede from the union, and there are conservatives out there that want parts of their state to secede from California. And become a separate, uh, I can't remember what they wanted to call their state, but they want a new state. A decent California, I believe is what it's called. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a brief brief pause, and we'll be back in moments. This is the Flex Nation. This program was pre-recorded. It's Fletch Nation. This program proudly brought to you by Clean Water Landed Coast. Visit the website, find out more about how you can be part of the solution, and it's easy to find, cleanwaterlandandcoast.com. Just that simple. In this last segment, since it don't matter, according to Chris Wilson, it, it doesn't matter to the voter, but it sure uh, interests me, is this uh, what we're dealing with this past week with respect to the Mueller investigation and the Russian investigation and so on and so forth, and suddenly the appearance of spies like us mm-hmm. in the in the trump campaign uh spe- particularly they've outed this guy halper who uh this professor who apparently has who was uh, at least uh, attempting to uh, ingratiate himself as a some sort of a federal agent into the into the trump campaign and find out information with respect to Russia, which he found out none because there is none, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's become a big brouhaha. And today, Thursday, I believe that the DOJ and head of the FBI, President Trump, uh, some others, uh, Greg Gowdy and Nunes, are meeting uh, to view the the information as it relates to this apparent effort to. I'm, I'm trying to be nice. To ins- for federal aid, uh, law enforcement agencies to insinuate themselves into the Trump campaign, as James uh, James Clapper said, in order to protect it. Well, that's interesting, given the fact that didn't seem like anybody was trying to protect. Well, it, it seemed like to me they were more interested in uh, Trump than they were in the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you follow where I'm coming from, I think so. Uh, so, uh, so it, 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 it's an interesting thing. If this blows up any further, and apparently there's clearly evidence now, according to Sarah Carter, uh, the uh, the lady who writes for the Wall Street Journal, Catherine Harris uh, with uh, Fox News, a number of reporters, and it's interesting to me that all of these reporters are female. They they, they have led the they have led the way on this on this in, uh, this entire uh, questioning of this whole Russian thing. They uh, 
if the, if they are correct, the information that they are putting out suggests that maybe we do have a problem with a spies like us in you know Chevy Chase and et cetera in the uh, well Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd were incompetent spies. Is that the case? Here? Well, that's kind of what I'm <laughs> talking much. about. That's <laughs> Pretty kind, much. Huh? That's kind of what what I'm sort of inferring here that uh, maybe they weren't so damn good at their jobs, but. Uh, and, and and if that's the case, and then we enter into this entire thing of collusion and cabalism in the in in the FBI and the Justice Department that was maybe occurring, then we have us a major, major, major uh, corruption scandal. We really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. We'll now, have to wait and see. I had read a couple of days ago where parts of this investigation are turning back on the Obama administration. Yeah, it's called the boomerang. Yep. And uh, uh, there have been people who claim that 2018 would be the year of the boomerang. And it it uh, it appears that, what was that old Australian song? I can't remember. That. Timey Kangaroo Down? No, Is that no, the you there, no. there was another one. I can't remember the name. I, I used to sing it in grade school. I really? loved it. Uh, but, you know, we actually sang Australian songs back in those days. You know, that now said the pledge of allegiance and prayed you know. that was back in the day right? back in the day that was before the supreme court got involved <laughs> uh so uh but anyway that th- this thing has and 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 look the evidence is 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 really really here's the the evidence has led people to ask when did this investigation really start because we st- we thought it started on July 31st when there was a letter, uh, the official letter of commencement of the investigation. And then we backed it up to July the 16th because of the nature of what happened to Peter Strobe and mm-hmm. Lisa Pay. Now they're backing it all the way up to March of 2016. That's when Papadopoulos and was met by so-and-so and, Halper or whoever, J- Joseph Mossad or whatever his name was, this professor, uh, this um, Maltese professor. Anyway, some character who knows. So you're who, like me. You're having trouble. Everybody's having trouble keeping track well, of no, all I these try, players. I, I try to keep. You need tra- a damn program. Yeah, well, you do. But but here's what I want to make the point about, and and this is, look, I think that they were on to Trump, and I think that if there is a if there is a scandal, I think they were on to Trump from day one. I think that if there were spies and there was a political effort to stop Trump, I think it started on day one when he came down that escalator, and it was it was uh, it, it never ceased, and it has never ceased until this day. By by these, uh, and and I think it was political, and I don't think it was. It was clearly, clearly not a criminal investigation when this thing started. Mm-hmm. And what happened was in August of 2017, I believe, uh, it was when uh, the letter by Rothstein that changed the investigation from from uh, from an intelligence investigation into a criminal investigation. That 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 is the that. That's the big deal here, and uh, and and f- for whatever reason, but but th- there's been a lot of stuff done in the process of this that is not kosher, mm-hmm. 
And it's frankly not about the Democrats or the Republicans or any other party. This is about the very process of our government and the pro and, and the and the criminal and the justice process of this country has. If this has happened, that's not good, mm-hmm. and we don't need this to happen anymore. We don't. Well, we don't need our presidential election process undermined. No, or any election process undermined. But I mean, especially when we're talking about electing the leader of the country. That's true. This thing's undermined and nobody trusts. The way it looks now, it's like no matter what happens in 2020, that will be questioned, that will be challenged. And and are we going to see this every time we have a presidential election? I, I mean, you know, turnabout is fair play, they say. And all's fair in love and war. I got news for you. Let's hope that turnabout does not occur and... And I think that that we need to really get into this in order – the country needs to get into this in order to make sure that there are some sort of you – know, there's some sort of safeguards that this kind of stuff does not go on because apparently we can't depend on individuals to protect the prop, the very process that we – that, that we depend on as a country and the credibility of that process. Then mm-hmm. that's what this has shown, and it's, it, it's very unfortunate, very unfortunate for everybody concerned. And, and the, the the thing that disturbs me is so little of this is being presented to us as absolute solid fact. We don't know, uh, as far as the Mueller investigation, all the players are concerned. We don't know. We, we're That's having correct. trouble separating fact from, from fantasy fiction. and from just pure hearsay. And fake news. Yeah. And fake news. And fake news. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's been a lot. And leaks. And, I mean, there's been so much of that going on. And, and not not just from, let's say, the administration, and not just from the FBI, not just from, the, but also from Mueller's off. Look, Mueller's leaked like hell in this deal, and 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 it's uh, frankly, it's not fair. I mean, and and by the way, here's the kind of things that happen that really are disgraceful in a way. Mueller goes to 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 prosecute these this Russian company that didn't exist. And now he doesn't want to prosecute them under the speedy trial provision, even the ones that do exist. He doesn't want to prosecute because he d- is not ready. Well, when you indict, the prosecutor's basically saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to try this case. Yeah. And and now he's asking for time to pro- – and, and I mean that's – You don't get a of, mulligan on indictment. No. I mean this is, this is the kind of stuff that is creating – all kinds of blowback and 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 it's undermining credibility and belief in this system and it's very uh, it's very frustrating uh we're inside one minute uh, remaining in the program well i mean thoughts? we're inside one minute yeah well i mean i could one have one minute remaining i could have 15 thoughts in one minute okay. but uh, but i won't do that Let's go for three but <laughs> well uh, so kevin i think that the, these fellas down at the and ladies down at the capitol uh better get their business in order but one thing did get in order, and that was the bridge bill by Rick Ward passed. It's That's a, good. The signature of the governor has been. I think. I think he signed the bill, and we got us a process and a outline and a structure to go build a bridge for Baton Rouge. And I noticed there's a billboard on the interstate right at Dalrymple that says "Build a new bridge." I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. So. Uh, so, so maybe we can make some progress here. We need progress. We, 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 need, we need something to break up the bottleneck that is Baton Rouge. That do. is our program for this week, and we thank you all so very, very much for being a part of it. And uh, the Fletch Nation will return next week, and we hope you'll be with us. Thank you.
You've been listening to Fletch Nation with Roy Fletcher and Kevin Gallagher. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the opinions of Talk 107.3, Guarantee Media, or its advertisers. Listen to Kevin Gallagher every weekday morning with Bill Profita on AM Baton Rouge here on Talk 107.3 FM, WBRP.